thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Boy, I hope if you're uh, if you've gotten over that, you need to hit the altar this morning. Boy, never get over what Jesus did and continues to do. Uh, I'm thankful. Uh, if you under the more you start to understand about salvation, you can say this: when you got saved, you were saved. You're being saved, and one day we will be saved. And it's just encouraging to think about that reality uh, that we are saved to the uttermost, but I'm thankful one day we're going to be in His presence. And the daily abiding grace that God gives us is uh, completely uh, overwhelming. And uh, I hope you're living in that grace today. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles here this morning and go to Ecclesiastes chapter number 7. We're going to continue on in our uh, series here this morning. We've entered into an interesting part of our book. We're going to be in chapter 7 forever. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but it will feel that way, okay? And so we're going to be uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, obviously for a good while, but chapter 7 is pretty much like the book of Proverbs. It's small uh, proverbial statements, and so each week we're really just going to be able to cover a couple of verses because there's a lot there. And so today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. And so if you found your place there and you're able to, let's stand together uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word. Ecclesiastes in chapter number uh, 7. Ecclesiastes chapter number 7, let's start reading there in verse number 2, where Solomon writes and says this, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We're going to preach on this subject here this morning, the house of mourning, the house of mourning. May God bless you. It's already you can be seated. And thank you for standing in honor of the scriptures uh, here this morning. It's a blessing. Our world uh, has reached a point, I feel like, uh, for some time, but increasingly here of late, in which we are amusing ourselves to death. Uh, we are entertainment-driven, are we not? Uh, boy, uh, people are overwhelmed when they have a, uh, a phone in front of them and they are just uh, leave it and they don't have it anymore and they're freaking out, where is it? Um, actually, back in the 80s, there was a book written by Neil Postman. There's a, a picture of it up there on the screen called this very title, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he had done a big study on the introduction of television into our society and what it did, uh, that medium transferring from the written word to television and what it did to us in every spectrum of life, from uh, the political spectrum to now where after a debate we talk about how somebody swallowed funny or their hair looked weird instead of talking about the content of what was debated about. Uh, to talking about even family life, that the centrality of the family has moved away from discussion-based things and reading books together and family dinners to all piling on the couch and watching a show and how there has been this shift. Now, this was written, again, back in the 80s, 
But it is amazing, if you were to read this book today, it feels quite contemporary. Although it's 40 years old, it feels like somebody wrote it this year about the same kind of ideas, how they have only been amplified, they haven't been minimized. With the advent now of the internet and cell phones being basically computers in our pockets, I feel like uh, that we have reached this point where we are literally amusing ourselves to death. We have moved from an era, a generation of people where we knew how to be critical thinkers to now where we love to laugh at funny cat videos. There's nothing wrong with that if you like funny cat videos, but we have reached that stage, have we not? And then social media threw a whole new cog in the wheel, didn't it? Yep. How often have you maybe found yourself scrolling or now swiping and watching videos or reading through Facebook or reading tweets or catching TikTok videos only to figure out it's been 30 minutes and you go, where'd the time go? It just creeps away from us. You know, a word, obviously, the word amuse literally means to not think. To muse means to think. I am musing about this. Adding the prefix a there or a adds the meaning in this sense of the opposite or adds the word not or to not think or the opposite of thinking. Uh, this works with other words as well, like a theist. I would consider myself a theist, somebody who thinks about God, somebody who knows there is a God and believes there is a God. But you put that a in front of it and you wind up with an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe there is a God, right? Symmetrical, if we think about something being symmetrical, we would say this is symmetrical, it means this side matches this side, and they're identical, they're mirror images of one another. But then it becomes asymmetrical, and then they're lopsided, they don't match, they're different then. Chromatic, meaning that it's on this color scale or the color wheel. Achromatic, meaning without color. So obviously we have this word amuse. Probably the best way I know how to think about the word amuse, which means literally to be absent of deep thinking or thought altogether, is to think about parks that we've created with this word in it. Amusement parks. Because you cannot be thinking clearly to strap yourself in some of those roller coasters that flip you every which way going 70 miles an hour and these hairpin turds. I look at those things and my boys are like, let's do it. And I'm like, let's not. <laughs> I don't feel like being sick the rest of the day. You boys are not musing right now. But isn't that the case? We, they're called amusement parks because we go there to escape critical thinking. They're meant for fun. They're cotton candy. It's fluff. It's meant for enjoyment. And again, I'm not against things that are amusing or things that are uh, meant for us not to have critical thinking, but just to have fun. I understand that's a good and a productive and a wonderful thing. Solomon in our text here is not saying laughter is bad. He's just comparing it to something that's better than. Actually, the Bible says laughter is really good. The right kind of laughter, the Bible says, does good like a medicine. It can be health to your bones. Yeah, it would be something that would be beneficial and helpful for you. So this is not a, a criticism of amusing. It's simply saying this, we've gotten to the point where it's all we do. 
We have reached a point where we have so numbed ourselves from critical thinking and critical self-reflection that most people, especially here in America, have no idea what it means to not be amused. We live in a false reality because the truth of real reality is too painful to deal with. So we have surrounded ourselves with false realities. Social media has now become our real identity, and now we have created something fake. It's become many people's real identity when it isn't all together. One of the most dangerous things about the entertainment of today is its ability to distract us from important tasks, these are important tasks, of mourning, sorrow, and deep reflection. Now Solomon here highlights the importance of these practices in the believer's life. And so I want to encourage you here this morning. In a world that is amusing themselves to death, we are going to talk about the importance of musing this morning. Or this, going to the house of mourning. I would love nothing else in my life than to get up and preach glory messages every week. Where everyone walks out and they go, Preacher, I feel like I'm alive. That was wonderful. That was, that was exactly what I need. You infused me with blessing and grace and health. And we need those messages. But sometimes we also need the messages that call us to a place of saying we need to be frank and we need to be clear with ourselves and we need to be willing to confront ourselves in the mirror of God's word in all of the mess that we are. So I want to speak to you here this morning, not in a condescending way, but as somebody who's already experienced this text through the week, of somebody who has in my own life had to say this, am I living a life that's just being fluff and cotton candy and amusing? Or have I uh, allowed myself to have true, genuine time of reflection and sorrow and mourning in my life? Now, if we'll remember, <clears throat> the first six chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes have been a journey under the sun where Solomon has been taking us from one stop to the other and helping us realize that everything in this world is vanity. Which means if you're living for this world, in this world, in the moment, it's all worthless, it's all vain. It's vexation of soul and spirit. The idea is you always feel like you're about to be there, but it's always arm lengths away. It's the carrot in front of the donkey that you can never get to. And so Solomon took us on this journey where he applied all of his wealth and his energy and his knowledge and, and his money and his power and his influence to be able to try all these things. And his conclusion was this. It's all empty. It's all vain. There's no value there. So a hard transition happens at the end of chapter number 6 where Solomon then takes us and says, obviously this isn't where you want to be. This over here is where you want to be. I'm, I always do this every week and I make you people feel really bad over there. That's not my intention. <laughs> but it's helping us understand he doesn't want us to live life under the sun, but living life for God. And so this hard transition, now we enter chapter 7 which I call uh, like Proverbs in Ecclesiastes or wisdom in Ecclesiastes. And this chapter, he gives these proverbial statements where he helps us understand that there is a life to live, that we can fear God and keep his commandments. And this is what it looks like. So he begins to give us great wisdom in this passage of Scripture. If you remember last week in verse 1, he talked about a good name. We have a name. Have a good reputation among your peers, but more importantly, before God. Stand before Him one day and be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
Because not everybody's going to hear that. Only those that have been good and faithful. And so have a good name. And this week we're going to talk about this, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth. And there is a difference between the two. So the house of mourning is preferred over the house of feasting. So really quickly, just kind of give some definition of what we're talking about here. The house of mourning here describes a place in which a loved one has recently passed away. Picture with yourself, maybe not so much a a funeral service, but going to a person's house where the event has just occurred. The rawness of having just received the information that somebody that you love deeply has died. That raw emotion. The mourning doesn't have to be conjured up. It doesn't have to be fake. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, paid for. It's genuine, is it not? At that immediate moment where the mourning is there and then other family and friends begin to arrive and they begin to learn of the news and communicate with one another and they begin to cry on each other's shoulders and it's hard to fully comprehend all the emotions that are taking place at that time. That is the house of mourning. Actually, it had been about four days since Lazarus had died when Jesus showed up, but it was still a house of mourning that he showed up to. The realness of their brother Lazarus' death was still fresh on them. And when they show up, you remember they come running out there, and and it's almost like, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And sometimes we just read past that, but there's so much raw emotion there. That is the house of mourning is speaking specifically about that type of an event and that emotion that is resting within the household itself. What is the house of feasting? Well, the house of feasting, they've been used to in uh, Israelite traditions and having, when we think about a wedding, we think about a wedding that lasts from like noon to two. Jewish culture, good luck with that, right? There would be multiple days that there would be events and things going on. And it was a huge festivity of, of laughter and great food and sharing stories and dancing. And there would be so much fun that would be connected with the festivity birthdays, other big events. This would have been a place of song, merriment, enjoyment, entertainment, fun. Now listen, that sounds awesome. That's a lot of fun. Go to a place where there's all that awesome stuff as opposed to the other, right? So you get the idea. The house of merriment is there's this huge, awesome event that everyone's so excited to be at, the house of mourning, raw emotion of some tragic event that has just taken place. So here's the, Solomon says, the reason why the house of mourning is preferred or is better than the house of feasting or the house of mirth and enjoyment is for these reasons. The first thing he mentions is he says, for that is the end of all men. Eventually, we are all going to lose loved ones. and Eventually, we're going to die as well. Eventually, we will all have occasion to visit the house of mourning. But he goes on even past that where he says this, and the living will lay it to his heart. At that moment, when there is that raw emotion, somewhere in that process, I think there is a deeper sense of realism, self-awareness, relationship than has ever been experienced in that person's entire life. At that moment, a spouse just passed away, parent, a child. I mean, raw emotion. At that moment, everything else doesn't matter. At that moment, you almost want to run out in the road and go, 
What are y'all doing? The world needs to stop. Don't you know what I'm going through right now? It's the feeling, the emotion that you're feeling there. At that moment, really, if you say life flashes before your eyes, there's the emotion, but there's all these memories that start to race in, and then the realization that those will no longer be experienced. There's a weight there, isn't there? What, well, what happens at that moment? Men begin to lay it to heart. There is true, deep reflection that happens at that moment. And Solomon, as he begins to point out the difference between the house of mirth, here, if you say it this way, there is amusing that's happening. There's nothing wrong with that. It's laughter and there's mirth. But in this place, there's a deep realization of not only the loss of that relationship, but then the realization of one day I too will meet this end. I too will be laid to rest. What is my life all about? There's deep thinking that is connected with it. He then goes on in the next verse and he says, The place of sorrow is better than the place of laughter. Now, this word sorrow here, there's not one specific thing that produces sorrow, but a lot of different things. Uh, what makes you sad might not make somebody else sad. There's a lot of different things that cause us sorrow. Actually, people in this room right now probably have some sorrow in their life. Some may be greater than others. There's some level of sorrowness that's happening there. The loss of a loved one, as we've already talked about, emptiness or the lack of feeling of purpose in your life. Maybe it is that you've got sin in your life. And there's a brokenness over that sin and you want to be over it and you want to be right with God and it feels like there's a struggle there with that sin. Estranged relationships with loved ones or friends. I don't, I don't know exactly what the sorrow might be, but maybe it is here this morning. There's a, a sorrow that's there. Then he talks about this, laughter. There, uh, laughter is really good. Um, again, I'm not trying to demonize laughter. It's a beneficial thing. Uh, I'll share a story with you because I always get in trouble when I share it and I need to be in trouble this morning. So, anyways, but my wife, uh, when we first got married, we were living in a small farmhouse just outside of Springtown, and um, just a little two-bedroom, one-bath, little bitty farmhouse. Anyways, um, as we were there, I had been working out through college. Apparently, I haven't been here recently, but <laughs> in college, I'd been lifting weights and running and working out, and, and we'd only been married... I don't know, two or three months, something like that. And so I was like, I hadn't worked out in a long time. I want to work out, but I don't have any weights. So I was like, Evie, how much do you weigh? You know, <laughs> get over here. I'm going to bench press you. <laughs> I did. So I, I lay down and I'm, she's trying to get up there. And, and man, we're just all kinds of awkward. You know, she's falling off this way and falling off that way. And in my stupidity, <laughs> as a young husband, as I'm trying to bench press her, it's a funny sight in and of itself. It's a bad idea. I asked this question, which end of you is bigger? <laughs> Trying to find a way to balance it. Now, thankfully, at that time, we were young enough in our marriage. She just laughed. I laughed. We were rolling on the ground. It, honestly, it was a stressful moment. I don't know exactly what all was happening in our life. But at that time, I look back and I say this. We needed that laugh, like really badly. And we just couldn't stop laughing for like 10 minutes. It's still a great memory for us as we look back on it. Me probably more than her, but uh, as we look back on it and think about the, the benefit of laughter. Now listen, there, there's nothing wrong with laughter, okay? Obviously there's a huge difference between laughter and sorrow. Genuine laughter produced from godly activity is not condemned here. Instead, it is comparing the importance of it that it is far less significant to be happy or be full of uh, laughter and joyous occasion than it is to have sorrow. 
there's a comparison that's made here. Obviously, genuine laughter is good, and it does good like a medicine, but I think maybe Solomon has a little bit of a deeper idea in mind here with the context of this being fake laughter produced from sinful behavior or behavior that we wouldn't maybe define as purely godly, not necessarily wrong. Listen, there's a lot of uh, even shows, me and my wife enjoy watching things, and they're not morally beneficial, they're not godly, they're not bad shows, but they don't benefit us spiritually. They're just there. There's a lot of stuff in our life that's not bad, but it doesn't benefit us spiritually. But how much of that consumes our thinking and our time? How much of that do we go on, on Facebook or social media or YouTube or TikTok or whatever it might be or reading even a book? And, and we do those things as a sense of saying, I want to produce laughter in my life and I, I need to have laughter. And it's not coming from a genuine source of following the Lord. And so I think Solomon has more of those ideas in mind that there are those who maybe should genuinely be feeling sorrow, who don't want to feel sorrow, and so they manufacture fake laughter. Yeah, I think that is very true even here. Well, why? He says later on in that same verse, our heart is made better by sad countenance there. An honest time of reflection does the mind, heart, and body good even if it does produce some crying. The last thing he mentions there in verse number four is this. The house of mourning is better than the house of mirth. Now, the idea here is that there would be a place, if, if you would, uh, somebody that has the choice, like they're walking down a pathway and they have the opportunity to go to a place of great mirth. Comparison. <clears throat> last week, there was a game that happened called the Super Bowl. Okay, anyways... There was an opportunity to watch. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Super Bowl, not maligning that or anything, but just for sake of illustration here, that there's a choice that's laid before an individual. They have the opportunity to go eat chips and dip and hang out with buddies and have fun and watch the Super Bowl and just, what's well, the house of mirth. And then there's the house of mourning. The house of mourning kind of in this verse deals with the idea of like a place of worship where there are serious matters that are being attended to, like this morning where we're preaching a message that isn't all maybe fluff and enjoyment and fun, like maybe we would enjoy sometimes, but maybe dealing with more weighty matters of sorrow and of musing and of deep thinking. And so he says, if we're there and we're on a pathway and we're looking at the two options, we're like, that looks a lot more fun than that one. But Solomon says, in that pathway, there's choices that could be made. And although that would maybe be beneficial and fun, there's more benefit to be found in the house of mourning in the house of deep reflection and deep thinking. Now, all of these verses, of course, bring up the same idea. The same idea is that there's a comparison between laughter and sorrow, mourning and that of mirth. And Solomon's truth this morning is simply this. Mourning is better than mirth because it produces musing. That's a lot of M's. So we're going to simplify this a little bit more. When I was in high school... My senior year, some of you all have heard this story before, but don't tune out. This is so applicable to this. It was personal testimony in my life. I was a senior in high school. I'd made some really bad decisions. I wasn't like way out doing illegal, gross, sinful things, but I just wasn't where I needed to be spiritually with the Lord. I had gotten apathetic and dry. I was planning to go to Bible college, and yet I was living as if I didn't even know the Lord. My devotion life was 
I never spent time in the Word. I never talked to the Lord in prayer. I mean, I knew how to act the act and, and do the thing of going to church and pretending like I knew I was where I needed to be, but I wasn't where I needed to be. I was in a relationship with a girl, and that kind of disintegrated, and it wasn't where it needed to be or what it should have been. And I was at a place in my life during my birthday in October, during my senior year of high school, where God finally arrested my attention and he allowed me to, if you will, choose the house of mourning over the house of mirth, not by my own willing choice, but I think he forced my hand. And sometimes I think we sit back and we think God's doing us dirty when God's really lovingly correcting us. And spankings don't feel good sometimes, but when we look back, we go, wow, God, uh, I thought that was evil, but you used it for good. Yeah, and it's kind of like a Joseph testimony. You guys did this evil thing, and yeah, I'm mad, I'm mad at you guys, but I'm not mad because I know this. God used it for good in my life. And sometimes in our mind, we think God's doing evil things and bad things, and yet He's doing it for good. And that's kind of how I felt at the moment. It was like, man, I feel like my whole world's falling apart here. This is bad, and this is bad, and this is awful, and I don't like this. And you kind of almost forcefully got placed in the house of sorrow. And for the first time in a long time in my life, I got on my knees and began to communicate with my Heavenly Father. Amen. And the conversation started sounding a lot like Psalm 51, where I'm like, I've done a lot of other people dirty, but ultimately I have sinned against you and you alone, God. And the conversation started looking more like this. As I started having deep reflection in that time of prayer, I started realizing this as the tears started to flow. I'm wrong. I've been full of pride and arrogance. I'm in the wrong place of life. I've made poor decisions, and now I'm reaping the consequences of those decisions. And that was not a fun place to be. It's not. To be honest with you, the house of mourning, sorrow, is not an enjoyable thing. But it was at that point, mourning produced musing. Amen. It produced deep thinking and self-reflection. And as for the first time in many months, I began to open up God's Word, the mirror of God's Word, like James calls it, began to show all these imperfections in my life, deficiencies and problems. And one by one, God began to correct those. One by one, I began to surrender things to God. It took many months and lots of prayer and lots of weeping. And December 25th, that year was on a Sunday, and I still remember, my brother was going through some stuff in his life too. And December 25th, that Sunday morning we had service, but we weren't having service that night. My brother was home from college. He went in there and he goes, David, we're going to the church. I said, okay. So we loaded up with another friend of ours, Josh. We went down to the church and all night we spent up at the church preaching to each other, praying together. And I'm telling you, that night... As clear as I communicate with you all here, it was almost as if like God said this, now you are where you need to be. Now, obviously there's no audible voice. I'm not speaking like some weird thing, like a 90-foot Jesus showed up or something weird like that. I'm just talking about a comforting peace in my heart Amen. that God had said the house of mourning has taken you to the place where now you can experience mirth and laughter in the right way. It was at that moment, the week after that, that I got a call from a friend at church who's a friend with another young lady who said this, you know Evie likes you, right? <laughs> Dead serious. Here, here's what it was. God was waiting for me to fully surrender and be broken and be complete in Him and find my wholeness in Him and experience that sorrow 
so that he could give me his best in my life. And not only that, but prepare me for where I needed to be spiritually and emotionally for Bible college and for ministry ahead. Now, here's the thing. It would have been so easy at that moment in my life to silence and drown out the sorrow by watching a television show, by scrolling through social media that didn't exist at the time. I guess I had Yahoo 360, the predecessor of Facebook. But it could have. Had I wanted to in my life, it would have been very possible for me at that choice to say the house of mourning, although needed, doesn't look very fun. I want to go to the house of mirth and to make that decision. I'm looking at a congregation of people this morning that maybe have that same choice laid before them this morning. You know God's been dealing with you about something. You know things aren't good between you and your heavenly father. Maybe a good indicator of that. When's the last time in prayer you wept before the Lord? Now, you might be a sensitive person. That might come easy. But I'm telling you, the Bible has a lot to say about weeping and crying before the Lord. You say, well, that's not me. Well, I'm telling you, if you get overwhelmed with the goodness of God and start to reflect on His holiness and His perfection and the fact that He loved you and sacrificed Himself for you and all that He's done in your life and thanksgiving begins to flow, I, I think there ought to be some association with sorrow and great mirth and happiness in a, in a sensitive way about what God has done. Now listen, I'm not trying to equate it tit for tat because I know everybody's different, but I am saying this, is your heart right with God? Is everything where it ought to be on par with Him? Maybe it is that God's been trying to take you to the house of sorrow. And maybe He's been trying to confront you about a sin or a deficiency or a, a apathy in your life and a lack of vigor and heart for His Word and for His people and for leading people to Christ. And you've been... Don't want to hear that. No, 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 no. Don't talk to me, God. Maybe it is that God's stumping on your heart right now and you've felt that many services... Right here, you've been feeling it in the pew and God's been saying, respond, respond, respond. And you say, if I could just get to the end of this service and get in my car and put on that CD, or if I could just get home and turn on that game, if I could uh, just get home and listen to that music, I can drown out all that God's been trying to tell me. Maybe it is you've been amusing yourself to death. You've been trying to drown out what God is trying to do in your life. Encouragement from a pastor here this morning is simply to say this. Do not drown out God. If he's trying to speak to you, listen. Go to the house of mourning. And like me, when I was a teenager, maybe it is you need to hit your knees in prayer and just finally let it out and open up. Say, well, God won't love me. Have you read the same book that I've read? You heard the story of the prodigal son. He's sitting there waiting for you to do that. He never moved. You left. And he's sitting there with his heart of compassion and, and longing, desiring you as a son or a daughter to come back and return. It's his heart. God's not sitting there waiting to spank you. He's sitting there waiting to receive you back unto himself. I'm not trying to make it you're never going to experience any consequences. I am saying this. So many people are afraid that God will reject them when God loved you when you were still a sinner That's right. with no redeeming qualities. It makes you think He won't take you now. He loves you. He's waiting for you. Go to the house of mourning. This morning, maybe you hit an old-fashioned altar and you let some tears out.
and you need to deal with what God's been trying to deal with you about. Don't run from it anymore. Don't silence it anymore. Confront the issue and let it be right before God. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and he covered and he covered and he covered and he ran and he did all these things? And then I took a prophet of Nathan showing up and saying, Thou art the man. And David finally broke. And then you have Psalm 51, which is the response to that, where David pours out his heart to God and an expression of asking for forgiveness and expressing genuine sorrow for the sin that he had done. Maybe it's this morning there's a, a preacher that's saying, You've done wrong. You're not where you need to be. And maybe it is you need to respond like David. If you don't have the words to say to God, Psalm 51. Just read it as your prayer to God. And in heartfelt confession, let him know, I'm not where I need to be. And I want to be right with you. Let's all stand together as we come to a time of invitation. If God's